Hi, I'm Hillary Walsh, a serial entrepreneur, award-winning immigration lawyer, law professor, TEDx speaker, and raving Phoenix Suns fan. Over the past decade, I've helped thousands of immigrants live free in the United States. I'm talking work permits, social security numbers, green cards, their citizenship, VAWA, T-Visa, U-Visa, and lots of successful appeals. Here's the thing. Immigration law is super complicated and legal advice, well, it can be pretty expensive. So I created the Immigration Law Made Easy podcast to share my 10 plus years of experience with you for free. So if you're looking for tried and true, no BS, step-by-step strategies and tips on how to win your immigration case and live truly free in the United States, you're in the right place, my friend. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Immigration Law Made Easy. Today is one of our fun episodes where we just talk about some immigration good news because there's a lot of news out there about immigration that isn't always positive. And I'm delighted to have two of my favorite people. My daughter, Ryan, who's nine years old and is a fourth grader, is going to be my co-host today with our guest, former immigration judge, Molly Fraser. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yes. And Ryan's going to take the helm of most of our conversation today. Molly, you were on the bench. How many years were you on the bench? Just under five years. Just under five years. And before that, you were a DHS attorney for quite a while. Actually, I have a long background. I was a prosecuting attorney for about 10 years. And then I worked for the former Immigration and Naturalization Service. And then I worked for ICE. And then I worked for Customs and Border Protection. So all in all, my career with the federal government was 25 years. 25 years. That's amazing. So you got to see a lot of different administrations. It sounds like you were repracticing when Ira Ira was enacted. Yes, I was. Oh my gosh. What a started. <laughs> what a time. So for people who maybe don't know what that is, the last major immigration reform that we had in the U.S. was like in 1996, 1997, back when Bill Clinton was president. And it, it really created a huge like line in the sand for those of us who practice or for immigrants, because it created a lot of different rules. So I I can only imagine like coming in and being like, this is how it was done, but we're actually not doing that anymore for these cases going forward. (laughs) Welcome. I actually started in January 96. So I don't think it it was enacted until perhaps April of 97. (laughs) And I had no immigration background when I started as the sector counsel for the Border Patrol in Del Rio, Texas. And so it was all sort of a big learning curve for me. And then you're right, I went through a new attorney training. And then boom, the laws all changed. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, I'm so glad I got that year of figuring out what I'm not doing now. (laughs) But my hope is that there are lots of people who are listening, who they either have a family member who needs to go see an immigration judge, the government, they're in removal proceedings, and the government is wanting to deport them or figure out how to legalize their status. Or there are lots of attorneys who listen to this podcast who may be very intimidated by the idea of starting a removal defense practice or taking on their first detained client. And my hope is that we can, you know, for lack of a better word, humanize judges because judges get put, in my experience, a little bit on this level of almost being afraid of judges, where I feel like when I got to my very first removal defense hearing was with you. I'm still wanting to call you judge. So forgive me if I do that, but was with you and I was was appearing on behalf of someone who was in Texas and I was just kind of rolling in helping someone pro bono and I was so nervous because I didn't know what I was doing so my hope is is that people hear this podcast they recognize that where everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time even immigration judges and and even maybe kids who their parents are in removal proceedings might hear this or they they may be in removal proceedings and have to go see a judge someday that they hear this and walk away with a little bit of hope. Okay. All right, Ryan, you have some questions prepared. She's the most prepared host I've ever worked with because she has a whole deck of note cards and everything for questions to ask you, Molly. All right, Ryan, go ahead. My first question is, what is your favorite book? The Outlander. 
by Diana Gabaldon, and it's also a Stars miniseries. It's about a nurse in right after World War II who gets transported back in time to Scotland before the Battle of Culloden, and it's a modern woman navigating back in the the 18th century. Wow, very interesting. And the author has written about nine books, maybe, and they're all about a thousand pages long. And she really does a lot of research. So I would say, all in all, that's my favorite, although I have a lot of books I like. Is it kind of a historical fiction? Yes. That's so fun. I've heard about that. Can you imagine, Ryan, going back in time if, like, you couldn't wear pants? You had to all of a sudden go back in time where you couldn't wear gym shorts and joggers? (laughs) Oh. And and knowing, coming from the future, she knows what's going to happen back then. She knows that Scotland is going to lose the Battle of Culloden and that the English completely take over Scotland. And she has to navigate in a very chauvinistic time and she has to navigate with knowing modern medicine and having just the primitive things that she had to deal with (laughs) so it's really a fun story now since it's a long book you do have to invest a little time in it yeah I read like books this thick oh well that'd be perfect for you then yeah for sure um my next question what is your favorite food can I have two I like pizza and ice cream Oh, me too. Those are my two favorites. <laughs> yep, the, you can't go wrong with either one of those. You can't. What kind of pizza? What kind of pizza? Hawaiian. Oh, I like pepperoni. Pepperoni's good too. What about ice cream? What's your favorite ice cream? Pralines and cream from Baskin Robbins. Ooh. I like mint chocolate chip or lemon, like lemon lime. I love sour stuff. Ah. Love it. I like mint chocolate chip. I'm not that fond of anything sour. Really? I keep telling her it's like something you grow out of. Like you remember those sour gummies that had sugar on them, like the worms. I remember loving those like this, but like there's it's something that you like grow out of or something. I think some people continue to like sour, but I don't. I like it sweet. Me too. My next question is, my mom tells me that you like to travel. What has been your favorite place you have been? That sounds kind of funny. Portugal. I lived in Portugal for five years when I was a little girl from about a year and a half to about age six. And then in um, 2018, I went back for two weeks in Portugal with a friend. And I'm, I just love everything about Portugal. It's the history, the food, the people. It's just a wonderful place. We've never been to Portugal. How does it compare to places like maybe Spain? I've never been to Spain, okay. but I think Portugal is probably less expensive. And I think I found the people to be very friendly. I don't know how if they're friendly in Spain or not but they were so friendly it's just there's so much history and so much fun stuff to do in Portugal I I would actually like to go back one of these days for maybe a month and do an intensive Portuguese language course so I can get fluent again because I was completely fluent because after we lived in Portugal we moved to Brazil so I spoke Portuguese for 10 years and before I went on this trip I did a little studying you know trying to remember my Portuguese and I learned I you know I remembered enough to get by and I also know Spanish fairly well so I had a lot of people ask me on my trip well why do you know Portuguese so well and I said well I lived here when I was a little girl and then some people said I spoke Portanol which was a mixture of Portuguese and Spanish if I could think of the Portuguese word, I would revert to Spanish. Did you find that that was helpful when you were on the bench? Oh, yes. When uh, we had quite a few Brazilian people in court. And knowing Spanish and knowing Portuguese, I would know if the interpreter wouldn't necessarily translate correctly. Now, sometimes, often, you know, interpretation isn't word for word. It's the meaning of it. But sometimes the the interpreter would get something important, leave something important out. So I would sort of ask again or redirect the interpreter. Wow, that's super helpful. I know from a practitioner standpoint, and I also don't speak any languages other than English, you really have to rely on the interpreter. And sometimes you get home and you're looking at the transcript because you finally you're going to do the appeal or whatever. And you start to realize that the things that are going into the record weren't 
what you know your client, at least what you practice saying, and it just doesn't make sense. And then those are the things that create inconsistencies where if the judge is just relying as they should be able to on the interpreters, what they're saying, it can really be damaging to your client's case. So that was, that's amazing. Um, I have two questions. My first question is, where's Portugal located? Yeah. Portugal. Mm-hmm. Portugal, where is it located? It is in Europe and it's directly next to Spain. It's mm. on the Iberian Peninsula. So it's kind of like we lived in England. So like if you flew across almost like you were going to France or you'd have to go kind of almost over it to get to Spain. Okay. So it's like right on the ocean, beautiful beaches. Um, my second question is, do you know any other languages other than English, Portuguese, and Spanish? Because I knew Mandarin. Oh, good for you. No, but when I went to Italy a, a, a bunch of years ago, I took some evening at Emory classes because I was living in Atlanta at the time and learn Italian in your car. And I got enough to sort of get by. And I, of course, forgot it all when I got home. So no, I don't know anything between this besides some Portuguese, Spanish, and English. Mm. What did you want to be when you were a kid? I think I wanted to be a travel agent. <laughs> really? You've always loved traveling. I love I've it. always loved traveling. I want to be a pediatrician. Good for you. Well, there's certainly a doctor shortage, so they can always use more good people being doctors. And, you know, if you're good at math and science, that is not all, uh, not all girls and women are good at math and science. And I don't know exactly why that is, but I'm terrible at math and science. And that's great. It might just be lawyers. I think that it's lawyers in general (laughs) who may not be good at math and science. (laughs) It's like a field where you don't need those skills. (laughs) Yes. I always joked, I'm a lawyer. I don't do math. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If I can't get my iPhone out to use my calculator function, then I'm in trouble. Um, well, was it really hard to become a judge? Well, it's a long process. So to be a judge, you first have to be, have to be a lawyer. So you have to go through your get an undergraduate degree, any kind of undergraduate degree will work. And then you have to go to law school. Undergraduate is usually four years, although it varies for some people. And law school is usually three years. And then usually the immigration court wants people who have immigration experience, although that has not always been the case. And during some periods of time, they've hired some people who don't have a lot of experience. But I actually had, you know, I had 20 years of experience in the immigration law process. And I actually um, interviewed several times and didn't get it. And then then I ended up getting appointed in September of 2016. What made you decide to apply to be a judge? Well, it seemed like the next logical progression career-wise. You know, I I thought I could make a difference and I could hopefully... Do it right. Do it right. (laughs) Get it right. Exactly. What were some of the things that went through your mind? Because in my experience, anytime you decide you're going to take, you're going to go up the next rung of the ladder, there are voices in our head that tell us maybe it's who do you think you are or what makes you think that you're the right person to do this, or you should just stay doing what you're doing. This could be uncomfortable. You could make wrong decisions. What were some of the voices in your head? I realize this is probably 10 years ago when you first really started applying because then you were on the bench for so many years. But what were some of the things, the obstacles in your own mind you had to overcome? Well, I don't know if I really had any obstacles in my mind. I, I thought I would be a good judge. And, you know, I was frustrated the times I didn't get selected, but I just, you know, I, I knew a lot about and know a lot about immigration law. So I thought that would be a really helpful thing to, you know, to be a judge with lots of immigration experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you kind of see in your mind that it was just a matter of time that it was going to happen? I thought it would happen eventually. Yeah, you could just see it. It sounds like you just had the confidence. I know that you're you and your dad are really close. And I would venture to guess he's probably your number one fan. Did he instill that confidence in you? I would say so. Yeah, my parents both were always supportive and went to my cross country meets and, you know, did everything they could to support me all through school and everything. Yeah. See, I'm a good mom. I do those things, right? (laughs) Are there a lot of women immigration judges? There are a lot. I don't know what the percentage is at all. Did you feel 
Yeah. I mean, I think in our field, in the legal field in general, we have anymore, we have the majority of law students are now women. But if you had 20 years of immigration experience or really of just of practicing experience, what was it like kind of seeing more women join the field? And then for you to take the bench, I don't know if you felt like there was a pretty even split. I don't even know if like immigrations get together for like conferences or anything like that, where you actually get to look around the room and see what the bench as a collective looks like. But what was kind of your experience in that regard? Well, I would say back when I first started being a lawyer in 1986, there was certainly some discrimination against women. I remember a time I was a prosecutor and I was second chairing a legal intern. I was the the lawyer and she was the intern doing a trial. And I remember the opposing attorney said, these two lovely young ladies need to prove the state's case beyond a reasonable doubt. And Lisa and I just looked at each other and I said, we'll mention it to the judge when the jury leaves, because you don't want the jury to get a bad impression of you and, you know, hold something like that against you making a fuss about being called lovely young ladies. Well, we didn't even have to do anything. The minute the jury left the room the first time, the judge said, counsel, you will refer to, you know, Ms. Fraser and Ms. Nelson as counsel or by their names. And he just stopped it. But that was such a sexist remark. Yeah. It, you know, it, I think it got better. And I, um, by the time I got to the federal government, I didn't, feel as much like there was discrimination, you know, the the pay scale is all set and the times, you know, when you get promotion is all set and things like that. So I think it's a little more fair. And as to your question about conferences, I think we had one conference during the time I was a judge. They had one another year all ready to go. And then they decided to cancel it because of funding. And then after that, we just had video conferences. So those are kind of miserable. It's not nearly as much fun. And, you know, you you get to know your colleagues if you when you go to a conference, when you go to dinner and everything. So you lose all that when you're doing it by Zoom in your office. (laughs) Right. And then you're just going to go right back to work. You're not really there to connect. Um, My question is, did you ever have judge parties? Judge parties? Yeah. But you have parties. Well, in the court that we used to have, like celebrations for birthdays and things like that, like at lunchtime. And the judges in Florence used to go to lunch on Friday afternoons. Would they be fun? Yeah. You know, we had a nice time. And then when when the immigration court quotas came in and our schedules got rearranged, then we couldn't really go to lunch very often. Yeah. The So what that means is that there was a time when you were just supposed to get your work done and you were supposed to do a good job. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. And then it became, if you don't get a certain number of cases out the door and finished, you could lose your job and get fired or you may not get a promotion, or you may not get a raise. So you were kind of really encouraged to just work constantly as fast as possible, which meant that some of your relationships with your colleagues would suffer because you just had to work more. Well, and the numbers that they put in were completely unrealistic. So it was, it was very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How many, how many like, I don't know if you have how much, how many minutes, if if they, if you had met the quota, how many minutes per case? Do you know anything like that? I think we would have had to do three or four individual hearings a day. Wow. And those are supposed to be, I mean, in my experience, those are at least three hours. So My experience too. Yeah. So like it, it is physically impossible to work and then to also issue decisions. Right. That are well-reasoned and probably need some research and some writing time. Yeah, that is wild. Although, you know, I sometimes did the oral decisions from a, at the end of the case, if there was time and it was a fairly straightforward case. But if it wasn't, there wasn't time or if it wasn't a straightforward case, we had um, law clerks who were excellent, who helped us write drafts of our decisions so that we couldn't have done it without them. They were fantastic. Yeah, I did a very short externship for a federal magistrate judge during law school. And it was amazing to be part of that background research and proposal process 
class where you basically go in and explain that from as objective as we can tell, this is the direction that we should go. And it would be in between a lot of things that the judge had to do. And then his recommendations were made to a district court judge. So um, those had to be adopted then by the district court judge. But it, it is... It is fun and rewarding to be on the background side of things. And a couple of, I guess it was over July 4th weekend, I argued a case at the Ninth Circuit and happened to sit next to in like the... I don't know what they call it, but in the pews, in the, in the courtroom, <laughs> in the benches, I sat next to um, one of the judges clerks and I was unknowingly just chatting him up and visiting with him. And then only found out right before I went to go argue that he was the main clerk for the judge who was there that day. So I was very happy that I had been on my best behavior because you (laughs) never know who you're talking to. It was this guy who was younger than me there in a suit. I assumed he was a law student and he was there going to probably draft the opinion. And we got a published decision in our client's favor. So I'm really glad I was not a turd to that guy. Not that anyone should ever be a turd, but you know. I don't think you are (laughs) pleasant to anyone. Well, yeah. I mean, everyone has their bad days, I suppose. But yeah, I was not. I was on my best behavior that day, thankfully. What what was the hardest thing you had to do in courts? In the detained courts, there are a lot of people who, who don't have any legal basis to stay in the United States states and some of them were very very sympathetic and it was very hard to tell them you don't have a case and I'm going to have to deport you I felt you know if people were criminals or bad people I didn't really mind but you know the the really nice family people who just didn't happen to have any legal basis for staying that was hard do you have a story about it no I don't I really don't can't think of any specifics about that Maybe you'll remember. She's got a good question here. Who is the rudest person in court you have met? (laughs) There was one respondent in court who wanted to apply for something. I don't even remember what it was now, but he was writing all over the whole application and he got rid of the numbers on the application pages. And I remember telling him, you have to fill out the form as it is. You can add additional pages, but you can't modify this form in any way. I'll give you another chance. You know, I gave him another chance to fill it out again. And he did the same exact thing. And I said, you cannot modify these forms. These forms are the forms. They're the way they have to be this way. And so I said, I'll give you one more chance. And if you don't fill it out, I'm going to, I'm going to find that you've abandoned your application and I'm going to enter an order deporting you. And he got really mad at me at the next hearing when he did the same thing all over again. And I deported him. So I think he was the rudest person I ever had in court. Most of the respondents I had in court were very polite. Um, Was he like scribbling all over it like a little kid or like writing just random things, like bad words? He wasn't writing bad words, but he was scribbling all over the writing all over it, like in the margins and in little tiny writing that you couldn't even read and... And then I, uh, I, the Board of Immigration Appeals affirmed my decision because I gave him three chances. Yeah. I mean, I, I was not, I could get annoyed in court if people weren't prepared or, or weren't doing what they were supposed to do. But, you know, people who didn't have a lawyer, I would always bend over backwards to really help them and explain the process and give them a chance to fill out what they needed to fill out. So for people who are listening, who maybe have to go to court and I've had this experience and I'm a lawyer and it's not me who is potentially going to be deported. So I can only imagine the level of stress that someone who's there to represent themselves feels. If along the way, they're realizing that, you know, I think by nature, we just want to say, yes, we understand. And then kind of like get out of there. It's our fight or flight almost kicking in. But then you leave and you're like, I don't even know what just happened. So if that starts to happen for someone, how can they ask a judge who is under a lot of time pressure, has already explained something, is speaking through a translator? What's the best way that you think in your experience Someone can say, I'm getting a little overwhelmed. Can you explain that to me one more time? Because I didn't quite get it. I think they need to just say it that way. I always ask people if they understood what I've just explained to them. 
And if they say yes, I'm going to assume that they understood. So I would think, I, I mean, I was not very often with other judges, but I would think all the judges would have said, did you understand what I just explained to you? And they really want to know that you understood or not, whether you understood or not. So if somebody doesn't understand something, they absolutely need to just say, judge, I didn't understand what you just told me. Would you mind repeating it or explaining it in a different way? Yeah, I think one of my favorite things about appearing for you as a young, really inexperienced, because, you know, you go to court and there's no like training wheels for being a lawyer and going to immigration court, especially in the detained courts. Cause you, the only reason that you're there is because you already have a client. It's very rare that you would drive out an hour away from civilization or wherever just to go sit in court to watch and learn. Um, but it is an option people, you know, most of these hearings are open. So if someone is a brand new attorney, don't be like me and show up. <laughs> for your first time actually having to go sit in the hot seat. But I think that if if you are going to do that, you have to hope for a judge like you, because I remember you really guiding me with, well, counsel, do you think that you maybe want to ask for a continuance so you can get this piece of evidence? Or would you like me to enter an order today? And <laughs> it's in your mind, you're thinking, is this a trick question? <laughs> or is she just guiding me? And it's almost always someone's guiding you because if we're giving you the option for a continuance, we want you to come back. So you're more prepared. We may end up finding against you anyway, but at least you're going to come to court fully prepared. And then I can make a decision on that. Is that, is that kind of how you would, how you viewed it? That's how I received it. Absolutely. I, if, especially for pro se people, but I would help new attorneys too. If there was some vital piece of evidence lacking, I would gently nudge that, would you like a continuance so you can get XYZ? And I know the people who are in detention don't want to stay in detention. But if I've asked for that piece of information, I need that piece of information to make a decision. And so it's really important to take the time to get the documents so the judge can make a, an informed decision. Yeah, absolutely. What was the easiest thing you had to do in court? Well, when I, in the detained courts, it wasn't that often that we could grant relief because a lot of the people with really good cases would be released and go to the non-detained courts. So it always made me really happy when I, when I could rule in somebody's favor and I would say, you are a permanent resident, you, I'm giving you asylum. That was, that was rewarding. It, it just didn't happen that often in the detained court. I remember, I don't know, it was before the pandemic. So it had to be late 2019, early 2020 and going to a hearing. And there was a gentleman there who he was, you had granted him asylum. He was having a heck of a time getting his biometrics, his fingerprints done, which is one of the steps afterward to like kind of just put a bow on the grant of asylum. And he had come back with his wife and they were appearing. He was appearing on his own behalf. And everyone was trying to figure it out. <laughs> I remember you getting a little testy with DHS because they hadn't really been helping this guy out. Like this gentleman had been doing everything he could. And it, it, what I appreciated was in DHS, you know, they were, they were like, yes, we will get on this. We will try to help and do what we can, even though their hands are a little bit tied because they're not actually in charge of much, but they have like the bat phone where they can call within the agency and, and make things happen. And that's one of the benefits. We, I always want to see private practitioners take the bench for the immigration judge bench because they've been in my shoes, but it's also really valuable when people come from within the agency because they know the inner workings of how the agency is. And that creates a really good check and balance for things because I didn't know that DHS could have helped that guy out. But once I saw that, I realized this, they're not in charge of scheduling it, but they, they can do something because they have connections within the agency. Definitely. Yeah, that's awesome. Who, who was the nicest person you have met in court? Maybe a, an immigrant who in your mind you think back to as being like, I'm really glad I got to meet that person. Nicest person. Nicest person. <laughs> there were a lot of really nice people. I don't really want to single one out. There were a lot of the people were just decent, hardworking people who were in a bad situation or made a bad decision and who deserved a second chance. Do you ever worry that you have made a wrong decision? Not really. I mean, I, I would try to make the best decision I had with the information I had with the law the way it was. And if I 
felt like I made the right decision, I would go for it. And, you know, sometimes the Board of Immigration Appeals agreed with me, sometimes they didn't, but I tried to do the best I could with the information I had. How did you keep from, like, I, I when I lose a case for a client and in detained court, that's more often than not, you walk home without the victory that you wanted. I still, and I know a lot of other immigration lawyers struggle with taking it personally. Like they feel like it's their responsibility to walk in and get a win. And we can all tell ourselves, you can only fight the case with the facts and the law that you have. But how did you as a judge make sure that, you know, if the Board of Immigration Appeals said you got it wrong, for example, how did you keep from taking it personally or getting down on yourself? Well, I just thought they were wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, the Board of Immigration Appeals was supposed to, in many times, just basically, if there was no basis for my decision, they could overturn it. There's different standards for different cases, but it seemed like in some cases they were not reviewing under the proper standard and they were inserting their opinion in instead of reviewing it. Now, some of them, it's a de novo review, so they can look at everything again. But I, I did the best I could and I, I felt like I made decisions under the laws it was at the current time. For people who are listening, usually when judges make findings of fact, like the, what, what would be an example of a finding of fact? I had nothing off the top of your head. This person has been a permanent resident for what's the standard? I'm like three I'm, years or four, whatever. Three yeah. years or five years. I find that they have met the standard that they have lived that in the United, they haven't been a permanent resident for the requisite number of time or maybe continuous physical presence, continuous physical presence. They've been continuously in the United States for 10 years or whatever the time is. Mm-hmm. So that would be a finding effect. So for findings of fact, the reason that, so for people who are listening, if you appeal that, the reason that the appeals court is supposed to really defer to the immigration judge is because the immigration judge is there with boots on the ground, can see, feel, hear, smell, and is really in charge of making those types of findings of fact. And then for- let's let's go back because I'm not sure continuous physical presence, that may be a legal ruling. Is that a legal determination? I know, right? In- so, okay, I find that this person testified that this, this and this and this happened to them and that the person was credible. Mm-hmm. Credibility determination, right? That isn't a finding effect either though. <laughs> well, I mean, I, the things that we have to give a lot of deference to would be, I think it, an adverse credibility, there are aspects of it. Like if their demeanor, um, those are types of things that only a judge can see. Um, so if their demeanor indicates a lack of credibility that persuades the judge that this is a person who's lying to me. Like they won't look at me. They're looking at their lawyer constantly. They're making faces, stuff that you can't see on the record. Those are things that, you know, if you start to see them from a practitioner standpoint happening, you know, it's, it's troubling because you want your clients to testify accurately, look the judge or whomever in the eye when they're talking, to have confidence when they're speaking. But these are things that if you're not an immigration judge on the ground, seeing it happen in front of you, it's very frustrating to see an appeals court start to pull that apart, unless of course the judge got it wrong and then you want them to pull it apart. (laughs) I guess it depends on who you're advocating for. But those are the types of things that um, Molly's talking about right now, where if you're appealing something and the Board of Immigration Appeals starts going into territory that they really ought not go into, that has to be frustrating from an immigration judge perspective. And it's also against the rules, which are our laws. So awesome. Thank you. Oh, these Ryan's got a bunch of questions now about appearing before a judge. So whether you're pro se or whether you're a lawyer, what are some tips and tricks you might have? Or maybe just a lot of don't do. So go ahead, Ryan. What is your advice for people going to court without an attorney? Well, always tell the truth is the main thing. And 
Listen to what what the judge tells you. When the judge says these are the requirements for your kind of case and gives you a chance to go get that information, if you didn't understand something, let the judge know because the judge is telling you what he or she needs to make a decision. So, um, for example, in you know non permanent resident cancellation of removal, it's exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident spouse, parent, or child. And I would tell the the pro se respondents, all right, does your child have any medical issues? You need to get the medical record. Um, Are you doing something special to help your lawful permanent resident parent? What are you doing to that will meet the standard of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship? So when the judge sets out what's required, people need to listen because they're not talking for their own benefit. They're talking to help the person who's in court. Do you find it helpful? I mean, I think it's probably hard for respondents who are detained, but if someone could have a family member in, is it called the galley? Is that the right word? Where they're in the The gallery, the gallery. There we go. If they're in the gallery, if they're in the, the pew benches, like at church to come in and take notes, man, that would be super helpful. Yep. That would, that would always be helpful. Yeah. Or to bring something to write with so that you can start jotting down as much as what the judge is saying, because those hearings move fast. Yes, they do. Yeah. Okay. So listen, tell the truth. And I think the other thing from my observation is only speak really when spoken to, because it gets haywire if people just start randomly talking. Right. The judge will usually say, you know, respondent, would you like to ask a question? Or if the judge refers to the one of the lawyers, it's not helpful that somebody else is talking. And I remember a couple times in court when the DHS attorney and the respondent's attorney would get into an argument. And that is the one time when I did get very upset and said, you know, you will address your comments to me and not to each other. Because remember, everybody in court is talking to the judge. I mean, there are other people in court, but the judge is the one that's going to make the decision. Yeah. And it gets, it also creates a mess for the transcript. If you are having all these different people kind of talking out of order because they're listening to a recording later on. So you want to make sure that you make a good record in case you need to appeal or to defend the judge's decision by really waiting your turn, which can be a little bit like I know that when I was appearing telephonically and you would have to wait for the translator, the judge would say something, then you have to wait for the translator to say something, then you can respond and then you have to wait for the translator before the judge then starts talking. But you, it really is this this difficult song and dance because you want to be very responsive, but you have to wait. I think that's also true for people who they speak English really well, but they've asked for a Spanish translator and their instinct is all of us want to be good boys and girls in a courtroom environment. So they're ready to answer. But if you've asked for a Spanish translator, you can't also be speaking English in court. You got to pick So you pick one or the other and then rely and wait on your translator, which can feel a little bit awkward, but it's a really important piece of, of frankly, not ticking off your judge sometimes. Definitely. Because it's just so complicated when multiple people talk at the same time. And it really is hard for the uh, person who's doing the transcript. Absolutely. And and those those recordings are not always the best anyway. So to have, have it not be the best system and then also have multiple people talking is just really hard. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I think Ryan has another question. What was it like to have my mom be a lawyer in your courtroom? Your mom was always very pleasant and very nice, and she did the best she could for her clients. Do you have a story about it? Actually, I don't remember that first time when she told me I was, I said, well, would you like to ask for a continuance? <laughs> I think you, I think you said that to me many times, actually. It was usually for bonds for my clients. <laughs> you sure you want to proceed with this today, counsel? <laughs> no, your honor, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, it's all sort of a blur. Yeah. How many people would you have appear before you per day? We usually had what, about 40 master calendar and bonds in the mornings. And then, you know, usually one individual hearing in the afternoons. So a lot, but a lot. 
talk to 50 people a minimum a day. Usually. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I really, that's, that's a volume experience. What advice do you have for lawyers going to immigration court? Kind of similar to the pro se question or the respondent question, but what's the advice you have for lawyers? Well, they really need to know whether or not their client is eligible for any relief from removal. One, so they need to know the law. And then they also need to really be prepared. And at an individual hearing, you need to prepare your client. You need to go through the testimony with your client so they know what's going to be asked, what you're going to ask, what DHS is likely to ask, and just be prepared. That's the main thing. And really listen, if the judge, just as as Hillary said, if the judge says, counsel, would you like a continuance to get XYZ? That is a big, huge hint that the judge feels like there's something lacking. And you should take that opportunity, even though your client doesn't want to be in detained any longer. Take the softball when you get it tossed to you. <laughs> Definitely. When you think of like, what are some, sometimes it's easier to describe in, in your mind, like when someone hasn't prepared their client, what are some of the things that you see where you're like, if they had just prepared their client? Well, sometimes there's inconsistencies because they get confused, I think. And they don't know, for example, in back to the cancellation, the lawyer needs to tell them, this is what we need to prove. This is what we need to talk about. And so if they haven't prepared them, they don't know that they need to talk about the fact that their child is autistic or their child has a serious medical condition or something like that. So they, they, um, you know, it's just obvious when people haven't been prepared because the DHS attorney cross-examines them and they get all confused. I mean, that partly could be just somebody getting confused, but if, if you've prepared and have gone through what's likely cross-examination, it, it should be easier to testify. Yeah, I think that everyone wants to say the thing that they think is most valuable. And in my experience with clients, they want you to know that they've paid their taxes, that they are clean, they got no criminal record. And while that's important, that's not the main consideration. It's a consideration in these types of forms of relief. But the meat and potatoes of these cases is a lot deeper. And if all you're going on and on about is having paid your taxes, then you're not going to be able to prove everything in your case. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I have a question that I was going to ask in the beginning, but I didn't have the time to. Where do you live? Oh, I don't know if she wants to say that. I live in Tucson. Oh, sweet. <laughs> and it looks like you have a dog. I have three. Three dogs. What kind of dogs do you have? I have a lab boxer. I have a border terrier. And I have a chihuahua mix. Oh, so sweet. Hello. <laughs> now that so you retired, I guess it's been a year now. Is that right? Yes. A year, I maybe even this month. It was either August or September. End of August, yes. End of August, yeah. So just over a year. And you spent this time traveling the world. And what else do you other in addition to traveling? What are some of the things that you do in your free time? Well, I walk the dogs. I bike. I uh, started going to a boot camp and I work with the trainer and I read. And you're loving retired life. <laughs> I'm loving retired life. <laughs> I know. I love it. And I um, go to the beach at Rocky Point. <laughs> yes. He loved it. Um, when you look back on your many years of service and you look at where our country is and where it's going, What's the thing that gives you the most hope for immigrants? The fact that there are people out there wanting to help them. Some lawyers who will do pro bono work, some and you know other lawyers who will not necessarily do pro bono, but do the best they can. So it's like a you have hope that there's a a group of people who are wanting to stand up for the rule of law, even even in the context of defense. Yes. I think it's really important. It, and I think immigration court would be much smoother if there were court-appointed attorneys. I don't see that happening anytime soon, but it's almost always smoother with a lawyer because they often know the law better than the respondents, not always. <laughs> it would make things smoother. I don't see that ever happening, but it would make things 
easier. Yeah, it would make things easier for sure. And my question is, what tips do you have for people? Because I know beforehand, before they go into court, they must be really nervous. Like either if they're the lawyer or they're the immigrant, they must be really nervous. What tips do you have for them? Well, judges are just people like everybody else. So everybody has a different personality. Some are nicer than others. Some are, you know, want to rush through things, but they're bottom line, they're just people and they're doing the best they can. The other day I had a client who we couldn't get the, we, we were appealing, appearing by WebEx for open voice. And my associate appeared by WebEx when um, she had filed a motion to appear by WebEx. It was granted, but she didn't read the order and the order said to appear by open voice. So a few minutes waiting in WebEx, she called the court. The clerk tells her, you need to be on open voice, lady. So she jumps over to open voice. And by this point, the client was so upset because of the confusion of watching all this happen and the judge saying, well, I don't know, your lawyer's not here, um, which was true. I mean, you know, in a technical sense, the judge didn't know that the clerk was helping to connect the attorney until that the client got so upset that the judge refused to have the hearing that day is he was in hysterics. So I think that as lawyers, we have to, you know, one of the one of the things that we're going to do in the future is send a staff member to be in the courtroom with the client when we're appearing by WebEx. Because I have a I have one of my associates is in Oklahoma and she had course, couldn't fly out here for every single hearing that we have, but she can sometimes appear by open voice or WebEx. And it's so important for us to take measures to make it smoother for the judges. Now we know that this is a measure that we have to take to make sure that it's better for the individual, for the respondent immigrant, and for the judge, because no one wants to be in that environment where people are so upset because everyone's stressed out. No one wants to be in that environment. And that's a way that from a, a firsthand experience, we learned this the hard way. So I hope other people can cannot have to learn that lesson the hard way as well. Well, and that brings up a good point. If a judge sends you an order, read the entire order and read it very carefully and follow all the instructions. Yeah, another level of detail to really paying attention in order to be prepared. Definitely. We, we had a lot of work on our end to do, even though we were super prepared for the actual hearing. Sometimes it's, you need to know which courtroom to go to. And I know that as someone who, like when I sat for the LSAT, I went and figured out where the LSAT was going to be so I could go sit in my specific chair so I could start mentally preparing to take it because I needed that. And then now when I go to, when I, I have a big hearing coming up, I want to go to the courthouse, see where the elevator is, figure out what I need to get through in order to go do my job. Because if I'm experiencing that firsthand, um, the day of, and something goes wrong because you're stressed out, everything feels more haywire than it actually is like, okay, the elevator's broken. We need to go up this flight of stairs. It will be okay. I've been here, done that before. It's just the second floor. It's no big deal. But if it's the day of, and you're like, I don't know, I was going to go inside the elevator to look to where I was supposed to go based on the little keys on the inside. That's a whole other level of stress you can avoid by truly being prepared like you advised. Definitely. Well, and that it applies to other things too. I just went to a family wedding in Idaho and it was at a, the wedding was at a Boy Scout camp. And the first, the first day we drove, it was not the way day of the wedding we drove and we missed the entrance to the camp because there was no sign from the direction you were coming. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if it had been right before the wedding, and we were running late or something, which we didn't. But, you know, it's always good to know what what the whole scenario is. Yeah. Ryan and I were talking on our way here because I said, you know, we want to be because she knows from school run in the morning. I have four kids and getting everybody ready for school. I get stressed out if we're going to be late. I start hollering. Um, <laughs> we're going to get in the car. And um, as we were driving here today. It was perfect because we were going to be 15 minutes early. And Ryan was saying that one of her teachers always talks about, what's the phrase? Um, to be on early. time, early is to be on time. To be on time is to be late, and to be late is to be unprepared. A very good saying. And then when we, we signed on about 10 minutes before our podcast today, and we saw that 
immigration judges, former immigration judges sign on five minutes before their recording time is to start. And I thought that's such a good rule of thumb. If like, you know, you sign on five minutes before your hearing is supposed to start, that's so much better than logging in the minute it's supposed to start. Right. And I, you know, fired up my laptop 15 minutes before to make sure that I could get in and everything. Well, and like that Zoom, is it doing some update on you and those, because they do just add so much pressure in that moment that you really can't avoid. Okay. I think the moral of the story is be prepared. Were you a Girl Scout? I was. I was going to say, I feel like this is some type of Girl Scout motto. (laughs) I was a Girl Scout. I love it. Well, Judge Molly, former judge, thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to have you on some immigration good news for Immigration Law Made Easy. Is there anything else you want to share with immigrants who might be going to court? Just um, listen to the, the judge and try to present your best case if you, if you have some relief from removal. Okay. Oh, Ryan's got one more question. It's not a question. Oh. It's something that they can do. Stay cool. Stay cool. <laughs> to the extent you can. I love it. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you today. Thank you for having me. You too, Miss Molly. I hope you enjoyed hearing this conversation we got to have with immigration former immigration judge Molly Fraser. It's such a treat to be able to work with someone who's in a position of authority and to see them have such respect for individual, the immigrant, their attorney, the government's attorneys, and to have such equal respect for everybody who's in their courtroom. And that's my experience of former immigration judge Frazier. I think the other really cool thing is, is when I was in law school, everybody taught us that you may not know the answer to the law. You know, you may go to court and not have the answer to the question that the judge asks you, but your reputation before, during, and after court will follow you forever. So it's important not only to be prepared, you know, it's important to be respectful to everybody we're working with, but you just never know when a colleague is going to turn into a friend or turn into someone who you're hosting a podcast with. So if you're appearing in court and you feel nervous, whether it's, you know, because you're an immigrant and the government's trying to deport you, that's super nerve wracking. Or maybe you're an immigration lawyer who this you've been yelled at by immigration judges before. I hope that what you take away today is that Judges really are just people. They're under a lot of pressure, trying to get a lot of things done. They're trying to move things along as expeditiously as possible. And that if they're having a bad day and perhaps have taken it out on you, that the next hearing is a new day and they probably don't even remember you from before, but they will remember you if you are disrespectful. Um, 50 hearings in a day is a lot of hearings in a day, talking to 50 different people, um, looking at 50 different cases, and that's, that's a really high volume. So if you've been yelled at by a judge before, they probably don't even remember you, time to go in, start a new day, and know that you're building a reputation with this judge, and keep just doing your best. Thank you so much. We can't wait to see you on another episode of some immigration good news. Or if you want some more substance about actually learning the law, tune in for our weekly episode. Um, We usually drop them on Mondays. And then on Wednesdays, we do a little mindset nugget so that you can take on a lawyer warrior mentality. And that helps you not only if you're going to immigration court, but also in your life. The best compliment you can give us is sharing this with a friend. So copy and paste the link and shoot them a text saying, I think that you might enjoy this podcast. And that is the greatest compliment we can receive. Thanks so much, friends, and have a great day. Thank you.